Hello and welcome to ISP, the Internet School Podcast. I'm Ellie Marshall. And I'm Eve Ahern. We're both students at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford. This week, we're speaking with Lucas Kello. This is a great sister piece to our earlier episode on cybersecurity with Greg Walton. Greg is based at the Cybersecurity Center at the Computer Science Department, and Lucas is the director of of the Cyber Studies Program at the Department of Politics and International Relations. So they're coming at this from two very different perspectives. I was an IR major in undergrad, so I'm predisposed to be really interested in all of this IR stuff. But I really do think that international relations has an important perspective to add to the conversation on cybersecurity. Here at the OII, we're predominantly focused on how interpersonal relationships are affected by the internet, whereas IR looks at the world much more abstractly, asking instead how are relations between distinct nation states changed. Right. So without further ado, here is our interview with Lucas Kello. great to be here. My name is Lucas Kellu. I'm a senior lecturer in international relations and the director of the new cyber studies program at the Department of Politics and International Relations at Oxford University. Great, great. Um, could you talk to us about your work on the cyber revolution? You underline the importance of and the lack of theoretical, under, the, the lack of strong theoretical underpinning to cyber security issues. How do you theorize this, the cyber revolution? It's a good question and it's a difficult one to answer because my own work is premised on the assumption that um, these new technologies are transformative in important ways but in ways that we uh, theorists in international relations and security studies more particularly may not yet understand. So what we are dealing with is a situation of uh, technological revolution in weapons systems but also in society more generally. And the way to define that succinctly is to simply observe that we are dealing with a new technology that is whose use is difficult to regulate and model even among rational state adversaries. And, and what, how are cyber weapons or virtual weapons different from their predecessors exactly? The distinctive feature of a cyber weapon is its virtuality in at least two important respects. So traditional weapons had to cross a geographic medium in order to reach um, their intended target, whether that medium be land, sea, air, or space. Cyber weapons don't necessarily need to cross uh, a geographic medium in that traditional sense. They can travel through the information layer, the internet, which obeys different rules and has different limitations and also possibilities than the traditional um, mediums of delivery. A second important characteristic of a cyber weapon is the virtuality of its method. What I mean by that is that the charge, if you will, of the weapon uh, doesn't produce immediate physical effects. Rather, it works by uh, manipulating a remote object such such as an industrial controller in order to affect the behavior and cause effects upon uh, component computer parts governed by it. So there's a quote from 2009 from President Obama that you used in one of your earlier presentations. It says, America's economic prosperity in the 21st century will depend on cybersecurity. Do 
you think that the U.S. has risen to this challenge or is, is rising to the challenge? Well, I think the, the observation, though, it is a gross generalization of sorts, uh, arrives um, at an important truth, which is that today, essential social, economic, government, even military functions rely on cyberspace, which can be defined simply as uh, computer systems and networks. And it's a basic fact of our current age that if those systems were to become insecure, were to become disrupted, then all the associated functions outside cyberspace that nevertheless rely on cyberspace for the proper functions um, would be also um, potentially severely affected. Whether or not um, modern society, uh, the United States, Britain, other countries have risen to the challenges, harder to say because, uh, as I said earlier, we're still having enormous difficulty even framing mm -hmm. and understanding what the challenge is. And in your article on, on virtual weapons as well, you noted that studying cybersecurity means a departure from the types of actors typically considered by IR. Can you, can you talk more about this? So international relations, as um, any domain of academic study, has its own theories and frameworks, and therefore intellectual preconceptions. And it's the purpose of these frameworks to simplify complex reality in order to hopefully elucidated. And traditionally, when one looks at international relations theory, it is very much state-centric. And more than that, because many mainstream international relations theories uh, focus only on a small group of states, uh, the large powers, such as uh, Russia, China, the United States, Britain, and relations among them. What is distinctive and interesting and potentially disruptive for our theories about the cyber phenomenon is that we are seeing a dispersion of power away from states. We are seeing a growing ability of non-traditional actors to uh, cause potentially significant harm for national security and also a uh, forms of harm that may destabilize the um, relationships um, among and security competitions among the traditional state units. Do you have any comment on whether formal states should be playing a role in, in zero-day markets? Well, there's no doubt that there is a robust and growing market uh, for zero days. And, and so the question is, what is the appropriate and uh, legitimate role of governments in uh, regulating or seeking to affect the operations mm -hmm. of these markets? And on an extreme end, you have the view that governments should simply, especially large, rich governments, should simply step in and buy out mm -hmm. the survey markets. And as some people have uh, proposed precisely such an approach. Of course, the, there are at least two dangers with that approach. One is that you are simply fomenting a growing a supply right. in the future. Uh, second, and perhaps more uh, fundamentally, there will be a range of actors who both produce or, or, or buy uh, zero-day vulnerabilities who are not susceptible to market influences because they are, for example, ideologically motivated. 
So such an approach, even if it were to be implemented, would not uh, probably would not succeed in saturating the uh, entire market. Mm-hmm. I think that leads nicely into the next question, which is, you know, is there still a lag between cyber realities and strategic theory, and you know, can we ever really catch up? There's a very significant lag, I and others think, and one need only observe the reaction of President Obama to the Sony hack in December of last year to uh, gain a sense of the enormity of the lag. Mm -hmm. And this lag in understanding um, starts really at a basic conceptual level. So we saw that President Obama did two things in reacting to and framing uh, the Sony Pictures Act. First, he made it very clear that this was an issue of national security concern to the United States. Second, he also said that this was not an act of war and that it was rather an act of cyber vandalism. Mm. Now, when I hear the word vandalism, I usually imagine uh, teenagers spray painting uh, graffiti onto a wall. I don't typically imagine an issue of national security concern. So what I think this interesting episode shows is that we've gotten this far in our analysis of um, cyber threats or the cyber problem. We understand that even the most significant observable cases such as the Sony hack are not acts of a traditional war. And that's an important observation uh, to make because it tells us what the cyber issue is not. What we're having uh, real trouble with is um, filling in the other side of the analytical picture, which is, if it's not war, then what then is it? Mm-hmm. And so um, awkward terms such as cyber vandalism, I think, uh, illustrate mm-hmm. that problem that we still face today in framing cyber mm-hmm. issues. So I just have one more question before we go into talking about your academic background. In cybersecurity, and this might be helpful for some of our non-academic listeners, do you use any metaphors or analogies to other types of weapons? You know, if it's we've talked about how vandalism is not necessarily the most helpful metaphor, is anything that we're experiencing with cybersecurity close to what we experienced with the nuclear threat? Is there any other type of weapon that this, you know, mirrors? So I don't think there are any valid analogies as such. There are certainly disanalogies mm. and that are important to recognize. And I think at a a very basic level, given the virtuality of the method of operation and delivery of a cyber weapon, there are disanalogies and important ones with respect to just about all other weapon systems in existence. Where I think there are similarities and analogies to be drawn, it's in the broader question of the lessons and insights uh, that one can derive from thinking about previous revolutions, technological revolutions, in weapon systems and the, and the challenges of strategic adaptation to them. And if we look at some previous cases, take, for example, one that you mentioned, the nuclear revolution, what we see is that it took states, in particular the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, two or three decades, possibly more, to understand first the, the direct effects of a nuclear weapon, for example, the blast radius Mm -hmm. of a nuclear explosion, but also more importantly and more fundamentally, it took 
several uh, incidents and crises, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, for states to learn basic rules and procedures of interaction mm. in the management or prevention mm -hmm. of a nuclear situation. Where we are today with the cyber issue is that we, um, we don't even understand what a, to draw from that analogy, what the blast radius of a, a cyber weapon is, precisely because a lot of its uh, significant effects are not of a direct nature, but rather of an indirect cascading nature. And it's very difficult because of the interconnectedness of computer systems and because of the general reliance of modern societies on them, it's very difficult to model or predict what the full um, indirect effects of a significant cyber attack might be. And coming off of that, do you foresee, um, similar to how eventually you discuss how some kinds of norms developed around nuclear weapons and how countries interact in relation to them, do you foresee the same thing eventually happening with cyber weapons as well? So norm development is uh, certainly an important area uh, for state action in terms of mitigating the potential risks of cyber conflict. The problem, of course, is that, well, first, it's difficult enough for states to agree on even basic norms of cyber conduct, uh, in large part because there is a significant divergence on what well, for the very meaning of cybersecurity is, and also what the priorities of cybersecurity are. If for China and Russia, for example, uh, cybersecurity, a term they don't often use, at least not as much as a competing term, information security, has to do essentially with the um, uh, protection of domestic channels of information flow uh, through digital media. For countries such as the United States or Britain, cybersecurity has essentially to do with the protection of essential computer systems. And so when you have such basic divergence on priorities, then it's very difficult to arrive at an interstate, uh, intergovernmental framework of normative conduct. But even more fundamentally, you can imagine future scenarios in which a, a robust and comprehensive normative regime for cyber conduct exists at an interstate level. But nevertheless, you have the problem of what do you do with these non-traditional actors um, that will be capable, conceivably, to disrupt that framework of norms. And, and how did you become interested in cybersecurity issues um, initially? Much in the same way and at the same time that the topic became of general interest to national security planners, and which is to say, as a result of the cyber attacks against Estonian computer systems in 2007. That incident is, in important respects, a point of origin for uh, security thinking and planners, because until then, there was a lot of skepticism about whether cyber instruments could be used in a way that could uh, produce national scale harm. And what those, what that incident showed, even though it, it was, uh, tech, the method of attack was technically 
unsophisticated, is that it is indeed possible to um, produce significant harm to national security. And how do you feel your perspective has been shaped by your background in international relations as opposed to, say, if you were a computer scientist? Well, what's clear is that international relations uh, scholars and analysts will frame um, basic elements of the cyber issue in different ways than a computer specialist would. And it's important to understand what those uh, distinctions are. And to illustrate, security is a, means very different things to, to both sides. A computer scientist will uh, uh, typically conceive of security in this domain as meaning essentially the protection of a computer system and network. Whereas for a political scientist, it's far more important to think of security in terms of the protection of essential uh, social, economic, governmental functions that reside outside cyberspace, but may nevertheless be affected by threats propagating through it. Also, you, you can think of distinctions on what a threat itself means. Computer scientists, in my experience, tend to conceive of threats as malicious lines of code, whereas a political or social scientist will be far more interested in the human and institutional agents that create and employ malicious computer code. Interesting. Yeah. So we just briefly talked about, um, you know, 2007 in Estonia when this, um, you know, cybersecurity became more popular. Now that it's, you know, what we would call like a front page, front of the, front of the newspaper topic, is there any popular rhetoric around cybersecurity you want to dispel? Uh, yes, and there are a number of uh, misconceptions and misrepresentations. Uh, and it's natural that that be so because of the uh, novelty and uh, potentially transformative nature of these new technologies. On the alarmist camp, uh, I would very much like to see dispelled this notion of a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. I understand why the term, uh, why these terms have been used, perhaps most famously by uh, U.S. Uh, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta in 2012. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, the reason in my interpretation has to do with uh, the sense at the time that the, uh, in the public perception, the cyber threat was not treated as seriously as it should have been. And one way to raise public awareness of the issue is mm -hmm. to use um, these kinds of uh, analogies and terms. But I think Leon Panetta and others like him are uh, intelligent enough to understand that it's, in fact, very difficult, if not impossible, to produce a scale of physical destruction mm -hmm. and harm and loss of life uh, in this new domain of security and conflict as was possible in a single action mm -hmm. in either um, Pearl Harbor or 9-11. Mm -hmm. So the problem with such terms is that they create a false perception that such uh, damage mm -hmm. is in fact possible when most likely it's not. But on the Opposite side of the spectrum, I think there are important notions that must be dispelled in the skeptical camp because there is one hears uh, talk about the limitations 
of cyber weapons in achieving the traditional purposes of interstate coercion and conquest. Now, that may be true so far as we can tell, but that does not mean that we can draw confidently the conclusion that cyber instruments do not pose a serious threat mm -hmm. to uh, national security or uh, international stability. Because what we are seeing, and probably will see increasingly in the future, is uh, forms of harm and instability that do not fit, fit these uh, uh, rigid, traditional um, frameworks of interstate coercion and conflict, but that are nevertheless significant mm -hmm. in ways that, as I said earlier, international relations theory may not be presently uh, equipped to address or explain. Mm -hmm. And that presents enormous challenges for international relations theory. Yeah. So um, I know that in his book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It, Jonathan Citrine also uses the, you know, we need a 9-11 of the internet to get the average citizen aware of the threat. What do you think the role of the average citizen is in these discussions? Uh, there's no doubt that there is a role for uh, individual citizens to play in this domain. And in fact, there's been enormous uh, amounts of work and analysis conducted on uh, precisely this kind of a question by people uh, like Jonathan and others. But where one has seen less work and analysis is on uh, questions and concerns that are properly in the domain of international relations theory. And there are a number of reasons why that are. But I think the point to be made is that because of the significance of uh, cyber threats mm -hmm. uh, to national and international security, and because of the enormity of the challenges, both uh, conceptually and policy-wise, that these uh, threats give rise to. And third, because of the paucity of work in understanding and analyzing these challenges, mm -hmm. there is, I would say, full employment in international relations um, work on cyber issues. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the role of individual citizens is, of course, important, but so is the role of states and mm -hmm. the interactions among states. And this is an entire realm of, and a new realm of scholarship that needs to be filled. And so I encourage <laughs> aspiring political scientists and international relations scholars out there to become involved in this area because the opportunities uh, for involvement will be enormous. What recent book or article have you read that you would recommend to our listeners? So there are two useful entry points into the literature from a security studies or international relations uh, perspective. And those are uh, first a well, a real classic. Um, this is a study done by the uh, National Research Council of the National Academies in 2009 uh, titled Technology, Policy, Law, and Ethics Regarding U.S. Acquisition and Use of Cyber Attack Capabilities. A rather cumbersome um, title. But the uh, study itself is uh, very comprehensive and detailed in its treatment of basic conceptual uh, uh, and strategic issues, also tactical aspects of uh, cyber weapons and their use. Uh, 
Secondly, I would uh, like to draw attention to uh, Joseph Nye's The Future of Power, in particular Chapter 5, which is a very good treatment on uh, political and international relations aspects of the cyber revolution and uh, a work that I think uh, quite rightly and elegantly um, places significant emphasis on the uh, phenomenon of power diffusion in the cyber domain, the empowerment of uh, non-state actors. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's so a pleasure much. to be here. Ali, what do you have to recommend us this week? This week, I'm recommending a Wall Street Journal article that Victor Mayer Schoenberger, one of our faculty members, recently tweeted about. It's called, How Datification Will Redefine Business and Society. Datification, of course, is a term that Victor coined in his book, Big Data, with Kenneth Kukier. Anyway, the article speaks to the history of data and IT and the relationship between the two with business, and you know, kind of charts back to the history of the scientific scientific revolution itself and how what people talk about as the information revolution is inherently tied to the previous scientific revolution. Basically, I think it's just a really great primer on the issue. And it actually links to a 2014 report by Erickson called The Impact of Datification on Strategic Landscapes, which nicely explains the difference and interrelationship of datification and digitalization. Anyway, it's a really interesting read. Uh, Eve, what do you have for us this week? So I'm buried under a mound of readings for my thesis, and they're readings which I really like, but I'm not necessarily ones that I'm going to recommend to others. So instead of recommending, I want to ask, does that, anyone have any cool articles they'd like to recommend to me? I'm thinking blog pieces about weird aspects of the internet. I'm thinking uh, unnecessary argumentation. That would be great. Um, you know, something to really get out, get my head out of the books. Great. Well, that's very exciting. And hopefully we'll get some good responses on Twitter. So that's it for this week of ISP. And we look forward to next week. <laughs>